0: aloha everyone i'm your host my name is christina laney Mitri, and welcome to smart living hawaii's podcast where we discuss smart homes and technology sustainability healthy lifestyles and smart business today we will continue our sustainable leader series and we're going to have a talk story with matthew gonser the Chief Resilience Officer and Executive Director of O'ahu's Resilience Office, which is the Office of Climate Change, Sustainability and Resiliency. We will learn what O'ahu as a county has for resiliency goals and how we're implementing those goals. So let's dive in. Aloha, Matt.
1: Aloha, Christina. Thanks for having me.
0: So before we begin, I always share a little bit about our guest speaker. So today, Uh, Since January, Matt has been, 2021, has been serving as the City and County of Honolulu's Chief Resilience Officer. He's also the Executive Director of the City Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency. He's joined the City and the Resilience Office in October 2017, and he was serving as the Coastal and Water Program Manager back then. Prior to joining the office, he served for nearly six years as the Community Planning and Design Extension Agent with the University of Hawaii Sea Grant College Program. So uh, he kind of took over, it was Josh Stanbro, is that right?
1: Josh Stanbro before was the the city's first Executive Director for the office and first Chief Resilience Officer.
0: And that was, what year was that when this whole thing started?
1: sure yeah that's a it's actually a really good story so every 10 years there's a big moment where we on the island of oahu have the opportunity to look at the city's charter basically our constitution and our rules and governing um foundations and in that process uh, a commission is established people propose ideas of amendments new things clean up and through that process of 2014 into 2016, one of the questions that surfaced was, should the city have an Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency? And it was in that election in 2016, and through the wisdom and courage of the voters that affirmatively the overwhelming support to establish the office came to be. And um, at that time, we were also um, lucky to be admitted into the third and final round or cohort of what at that time was the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities Initiative. So there was this local leadership and vision, um, but also we had gone out and already competed to be part of this learning network all across the globe. Um, And that is really what helped set the stage for the early work that we did. And the uh, team really started with Josh Stambro before the first resilience officer in about May of 2017. Um, So we're still relatively young, all things considered, but we're here to continue to bring validation to that voice that the community uh, brought up in 2016.
0: So my nonprofit, Smart Living Hawaii, um, basically started at that similar time. And I remember meeting with Josh in his office, like when this whole thing started, and it was kind of like, like they were just getting things together. And I think they just had like, he just had, a, it was just starting. And so I was like, once things were established, I was like, I had to do a podcast
1: mm-hmm. with them because
0: like all of this was happening. And then so, so many years have gone by since so we've continued our work. And so today's the first opportunity for me to be meeting with you guys and now he's not here. So um, we will learn more about what has evolved since 2017, I think will be great. Um, a lot of people don't know, and um, there's so many different layers because, Oahu is a powerhouse. I mean, we have so many people here and so many businesses here. I would say a lot of the um a lot of the stuff that we do on the county level here, um, I think also trickles down to some of the smaller counties. Um, there's a lot of, you know, connections that are made to um get everybody on the same space. But um, anyhow, the government with the state and county levels are very different. So a lot of people don't know who's doing what. And um when you talk about this office, like there's the Hawaii climate, I mean, commission, right? And mm-hmm. then like that's mm-hmm. more on the the big, big level um statewide. And then there's you guys and everything. So it's understanding that is good for people to know. And um let's see let's go into before we start um diving deeper into your office let's talk about your background and where Mm. you came from are you where are you born and raised
1: uh in some respects i guess i'm an island boy but a very different island the island of long island new york which is a couple of counties that jut out into the atlantic ocean east of new york city um and You know, I have a background in natural resources management and landscape architecture and community planning. And um, really, besides a couple of during school fellowship, summer gigs kind of thing, my whole career has been in the public sector. Uh, I worked for a small town community and planning development department on Long Island, New York, called the town of Smithtown. I'm from a place called Amityville. New york which is on the south shore of long island about an hour's train ride from new york city um, and then as you mentioned at the start of the show my first um position here in hawaii was with the university of hawaii doing outreach extension research and education and really ensuring that the work that's being done at the university is applicable to community members and in addition to outreach we also have this phrase called inreach, where through our extension and learning and connecting with people and practitioners or government officials, what, is it, what are the questions that they have? How do we bring that interest, desire, and that need back to the university to then turn back around and provide the support to answer those questions? So you know, I've really brought that, that approach and that mentality to the work that we do as a startup office and as a young office. Really, we're trying to do new things And that requires both pushing boundaries, being empathetic to capacity constraints, recognizing that change is coming to our shoreline. So we actually need to change if we want to have a place that we can continue to love and that can continue to love us back. The the sheer reality of the geographic isolation and what climate change has on the horizon for us, let alone what we've already observed and are experiencing today, means we have to be proactive and we're going to have to do things differently. And that, that can be difficult, that can be concerning when you talk about change, because um, oftentimes people aren't so, so interested in change. But we know, it's
0: inevitable.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's coming to us whether we're prepared or proactive enough. So let's not just um, get concerned about the worst, let's get ahead of it and also improve upon environmental and community conditions while we're tackling the biggest challenge of our time, which is climate change.
0: Right. So, was that program something that you, like, you came to Hawaii for? The Sea Grant one?
1: Sea Grant is a, uh, yeah, Sea Grant is it's a national program. They are state and university partnerships through the National Association, uh, sorry, NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. Um, And they... You know we're fortunate here. It's based here at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, but they have extension agents all across the state and in different islands in the Pacific. And um, I learned about Sea Grant as a model, as a as an entity, when I was in graduate school. And there was a moment one summer where I just cold called nine of the different programs across the nation: a couple of East Coast, a couple of West Coast, and the UH program. And it was really. Um, Because of the transition of the Sea Grant program nationally and the leadership of the local uh, program, traditionally it was established to support coastal economies, fisheries. But over time, things like coastal tourism became a much more significant economic sector. And also what we were doing on the land side was having impacts in the nearshore in terms of environmental quality, Mm. reef, fish. And also yeah, the recreational the resource.
0: And everything. Exactly.
1: Huh? And the other thing is, coastal hazards were increasing. So the UH program actually was driving this change and the evolution mm-hmm. in what the national program needed to really start getting more proactive about. And though I never met him, there was an individual named Peter Rappa, who was a was longtime works, huh? extension agent with Sea Grant and actually was one of the founders of the Hanama Bay Education Program, as we know it today, which is a Sea Grant and City Department of Parks partnership. Anyway, he he was coming from an environmental planning, an environmental advocacy, an environmental education background, recognizing that we need to do more on the planning side. We can't be um, passive about preparing for hazards. We can't be um absent in the discussions about what we do on land impacts in the near shore so the the local program was looking for people from planning backgrounds watershed management urban and community forestry so um, i owe a lot to this individual who i again never met because unfortunately he passed away in 2010 from throat cancer uh, but in his honor there now is an annual summer fellowship program that the university grant. See- college program hosts uh, to both perpetuate the spirit and his legacy, um, but also to continue to advance the work. So that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of the trajectory of how I first had a, an opportunity to join UH, UH and then ultimately took a position that hadn't existed before then.
0: Cool. And Sea Grants is also the one they do, like prepared, like was it tsunami, hurricane, natural disasters, or natural? Yeah, one hazards,
1: of right? one of their more prominent uh, resources is the homeowner's handbook to prepare yeah. for natural so hazards.
0: We had mm-hmm. them come and speak at our um, Honolulu Board of Realtors uh, regional when I was chair, and it was very. It's a very helpful handbook, and they have several additions to it that they keep updating. But it's very useful. Um, anybody can you know check it out online so I mean completely different to what we're talking about now but
1: no it's it's, it's all related
0: yeah because we're going we're in the hurricane season there's a lot going Mm -hmm. on there's so much that kind of tails into climate change because it's just getting intensified um, Mm -hmm. with the different type of natural disasters that we're encountering so um, anyhow yeah awesome so now that we got ourselves into where you are today (laughs) How about we jump into the resilience office? And if you can share with us, um, I know there's several either handbooks or reports or um different types of um I guess strategies and plans mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. your your team has created and certain things that you update. So I wanted to dive into that because there's some that you kind of keep updating. There's you know the the plans and the strategy and stuff. So let's start maybe with the strategy and the plan of the, the office.
1: Great, yeah. So as I mentioned, at the same time that the voters established the office, the city had been awarded a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. And what that afforded was some um, support for personnel, um, direct technical assistance from a cadre of, of contractors that they had, but it also had a requirement. As a grantee, we needed to produce a resilient strategy and that really was a great opportunity as a new office, as new government, to directly engage community in these discussions about what, what are your concerns around pressing resilience issues, not just climate at that time. Uh, a lot of the issues, obviously, things that you know, you're acutely aware of in the real estate business as well is affordability, access to um, you know, stability, whether it's in transportation, housing, food jobs, et cetera. Um, so through you know, two rounds of island-wide community engagement, uh, several months of technical sector working groups, um, in May of 2019, Mayor Caldwell at the time issued and, and released the city's resilience strategy at the state of the city. And it really looked at four main pillars. One, long-term affordability, some of those items that we talked about in terms of access to financial resources for transportation housing, but also what's the city's role in things like local agriculture or economic development. Um, The second pillar was this notion of bouncing forward, what are we doing pre during and after any hazard event, and making sure that we're not just going back into a vulnerable situation, just because we want to quickly get back to where we were before, how do we do better and smarter moving forward? And then the third pillar was climate security, really both sides of the climate security coin. We need to immediately turn off the faucet on climate carbon pollution, the thing that is requiring us to even think about climate change adaptation. It always has to be a both and, but we also know if we were successful in stopping greenhouse gas emissions yesterday, there's so much energy and momentum in the system that that water behind you, the ocean levels will continue to rise for generations, thousands of years to come, but we might be able to sort of slow the rate through time. Um, Things like temperature, we know with some great certainty how hot it will continue to get into the mid-century and beyond. But we also know that climate and the energy of climate change makes rainfall less predictable. It can either increase drought it can also increase really heavy rains. And when the air is warmer, it can actually just hold more moisture, but at some point it'll fall out in buckets. And that's where we've gotten some of our flashier, heavy rainfall events that aren't even associated with something like a hurricane, but with uh, increasing temperature in the ocean, that is the fuel that supports something like a hurricane. So we also know if the ocean continues to get warmer, the likelihood of some of the storms coming closer to the state increases. So across the board, um, that's really what informed that climate security pillar. But it really was the community that reminded us, hey, we, we understand there's risks and concerns, but we also um, know that there are some things that we're good at. And how do we not lose sight of the kinds of social resilience and community cohesion that's going to be even more important to tackle those problems moving forward? So, across the resilience strategy, we have four pillars. Three of them were problem areas, but it really was this last one around community cohesion um, that we know is going to be increasingly important, especially as some of our demographics continue to change in terms of um, folks that are like myself, you know, out of state residents that have moved here over time. What's their awareness around place and culture, let alone any of the climate realities? Uh, That's why. You know, we're always happy to engage anyone that can help us extend the story and the, the being clear-eyed, open, and honest about climate moving forward. So that's, in a nutshell, what the resilience strategy was. And we've been chipping away, um, really tackling those uh, strategic actions over time. It was meant to be a punch list of stuff that we could work on, move on from, advance. We are not likely to update the resilience strategy but it's really started to permeate into other baseline city policies that we're also working on.
0: Awesome. So um, maybe we can talk about, I guess, some of the missions and goals after the strategy, like what things are we specifically doing right mm-hmm. now today um, or over this past, what is it, seven, eight years now um, and how, how we're seeing that you know, coming, coming through fruition and stuff.
1: Yeah, so it really goes across uh, three P's, Mm -hmm. not like public private partnership, but policies, programs, projects, and maybe I'll add a fourth P, people, right, we need people to be in these positions and uh, the new roles and the different programs that are expected of us to effectuate the good work and to continue to partner with folks. So Since the resilience strategy came to be and we keep working on it, um, different city ordinances have been passed that have assigned us more work or more specific kinds of implementation that still is consistent with the resilience strategy. And it's really about um, the city's requirement now to have a formal climate action plan. So when we say climate action, we're talking about greenhouse gas emissions reduction or mitigation that's really stopping pollution, but also reminding that climate action more often than not is also good business, right? There's so much volatility in our energy and cost sectors because of our dependence on importing foreign fossil fuels sometimes from pretty precarious locations around the globe as well. And the more that we can keep money circulating in the economy on island and in state, the more resilient and robust we will be because we won't have these dependencies of exporting more than $4 billion annually to bring in the fuel that's now making us have to look at things like sea level rise and increasing temperatures. Um, So other bills have come to pass, um, something maybe that you're interested in or aware of. Um, In 2022, a building benchmarking program was created that um, through the next two years. This year, the first reporting happened. But over the next two years, every building, 25,000 square feet and greater, will need to report to the city its annual energy and water usage. So this is about taking stock on an annual basis, the aggregated data, so nothing's personal in terms of any one tenant's uh, individual energy or water usage, it's really about looking at the whole of a building for a couple of reasons. One, um, just having transparent, accountable information can stoke market competition you know an office building looking at a similar office building of a similar age they might say like oh my gosh you know what does this data mean for me how do i make sure that i have a competitive edge and and can work with my tenants but also yes. what commercial, we're more excited commercial,
0: about. commercial? Mm-hmm. okay
1: uh, but also multi multi-unit residential
0: yeah so this would be like condo buildings and everything too mm-hmm. right
1: Mm-hmm. And, and everything so this in
0: is between. collecting data and this starts when?
1: So actually the first round of buildings, 100,000 square feet and greater, their reporting was due June 30th of this year. And the reporting, the, the uh, open, transparent online reporting should be up in the next month and a half or so. Let's see,
0: 100,000 square feet. What size of a building is that?
1: Yeah, so those are obviously some of our largest, you know, office buildings, condo buildings, et cetera. Yeah. Okay.
0: So everybody across the board on Oahu, basically, with a hundred thousand square feet or more, had to turn in their report. Date.
1: Yep, in June. Yeah.
0: Okay. And, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say
1: we're we're not at a hundred percent reporting at this point in time. We're really here to be a partner in the first many years. Um, and there are many that have requested extensions through the formal process. You know, we're still working with folks and we appreciate anyone that can help us get the word out, especially um, as those buildings typically have more resources or building managers that are are generally aware of this. A lot of uh, some of the, you know, Class A or other um, condo buildings, they they actually have been benchmarking because they're acutely concerned about the operations and maintenance of their own facilities. Mm -hmm. So, so but the other thing that we're excited about is when we have access to this information, we at the city can even be a better partner working with under-resourced buildings to help maintain affordability, bring resources to bear from say the federal government or other programs in the future to retrofit, uh, improve efficiency, and help maintain affordability in some of these older naturally occurring, naturally occurring affordable buildings as well.
0: So I totally think that's awesome. And just so people understand this, Mm -hmm. this also, is like, you know, right now it's like at a place of like, how can we help everybody? Um, but through time it's, it is going to come down to, I believe, you know, charging, you know, (laughs) Per, per person, how much water does it cost, or how many? How much water is really per person in a building? Like, I I mean, I look at Alia, and I look at Kule Place, which are two um, towers that are being built by the mm-hmm. Kobayashi Group, and they are doing it right. I mean, they with when it comes to um, separately metering their water. I just did a I just did a blog on this mm-hmm. because it's specifically on. The sustainable side. It's like separating their water and separating their um, their electricity. So most mm-hmm. buildings have done this retrofit with, you know, separately metering their electricity at this point. And they also have their own hot water system. And then they have everybody's on a separately metered water. And now with our Red Hill situation, and mm-hmm. not so much water, I mean, it is going to come down to the point where I believe um, we will be you know, charge that way. And if a whole tower isn't separately metered for water, they're going to have to accrue that cost or mm-hmm. it's going to be placed on everybody per person. And this will be an additional charge that we will start to see. Um, I just, I mean, if that, how else can we do this? And so, you know, Aliyah and Kuole Place, kudos to them. Everybody there will um, already be set up to mm-hmm. have it set up that way. And I think following suit, I think everybody else will end up following suit. Otherwise the numbers are going to be so high and renters are going to, you know, not care so much, right? <laughs> just, they're just paying a set rent. And then um, the the actual owner ends up paying more just like it did before with electricity and mm-hmm. running someone's AC, right? Like now that it's separately metered, it's easier to track. So with data, and comes- you, you
1: hit it, yeah, you hit it right on the note. It's about awareness and really unlocking the power of information because if someone doesn't have that that information in front of their face, they they don't know their own behaviors. They don't know what they may or may not be able to do to reflect the the use and potentially even save money as well. I mean, certainly with the newer buildings, that's great to hear. And Kobayashi's doing a lot of other exciting stuff around um, potentials for gray water reuse within a building and really exploring some innovations around just using precious fresh water for when we need it and making sure that we are using other forms of water for stuff that don't require that, that top grade potable water. You know, I've lived in three different apartment buildings, um, as a renter. And now fortunately as an owner, I've never seen a water bill just cause that's not the system that works. Yeah, right. So, so have
0: no idea, maybe, maybe
1: right? I'm a good, uh, you know, maybe I'm efficient or effective, maybe I'm not relative to others. Or, you know, maybe we just have a bunch of free riders out there. But that's, that's really the the hope too. And you can get to some of that through the aggregated building benchmarking as well. Because you can uh, look at a similar age building, a similar number of units or occupancy, and start to look sort of like for like. It's not about comparing an office building to a condo building, those are two different kinds of use types. So we look forward to sharing and learning that information along with everyone else.
0: Awesome. So with that said, I would love to see, I was talking to Hawaii energy too, because that's another side is the energy side, right? Is to like, I always had this like idea of like greening your condo. (laughs) Like that was my thing. So it would be energy energy. It'd be greening it with energy, greening it with um, recycling, greening it with um, water, and then greening it with um, uh, food security and being mm. able to um, have like community gardens or different. And there'll be different levels that a that an association could adopt in those areas um, if they choose to. But the hardest thing with with associations is that is getting into their meetings right and 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 the Mm. vendors getting in to show how they're going to help because there's so many people that want to talk to them and then like they only have so much time and anyways if there was some kind of package put together by the county with a list of vendors who actually Provide these services all in one—that um, would be awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally and we don't—we don't know where it might go. Hawaii Energy is a is a tremendous partner, and we should all be um, grateful that we even have something like a public benefits fund that can then support those kinds of programs across all use types, right? Small businesses to whole condo buildings, like you just described. We're also now exploring in a new project what might it take for the city or what's the right framework or structure for us to set up some kind of affordable housing green retrofit program. And we think a combo of stuff. There's a lot of federal resources through the Inflation Reduction Act from now through about 2032. Um, We will start to learn more through the building benchmarking program. And then what are the other kinds of grants or resources that we can maybe plus up existing programs like Hawaii energy to further deploy the kinds of things that you're talking about as well.
0: So um, on October 2nd for our UN World Habitat Day, (laughs) I am definitely hoping that you'll be able to chat about that. (laughs) That would be great (laughs) to talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, looking Um, forward to that panel.
0: So anyhow, moving on, maybe talk a little bit. Let's see, I had some things... These were just taglines, I think, of just different missions or goals on your end. There's green city operations, reduce climate emissions and impact, coordinate with federal state agencies, promote resilience, resilient communities, Um, climate change, ensure. What other things that would you like to share that you guys are currently doing that would be um, kind of like applicable, like how we just talked about now, the Mm -hmm. kinds of things that you're kind of involved in? Yeah, the so,
1: so I mentioned, um, you know, one of the laws that came to be s- since the office was established was this requirement to create a climate action plan. That's one of the plans that will be updated periodically. And we're about halfway through the first five year cycle and starting to reengage community members on taking stock on where we're at. Where are we progressing where are we perhaps a little stuck in advancing certain actions so that we can be more strategic about the next version of the climate action plan, especially in light of the kinds of programs through the federal government recently that just weren't on the table in terms of availability of resources before. So we're excited to start the community engagement on that in the coming months. Um, But we're also right now actively working to release the public review draft of a climate adaptation strategy. So if mitigation and climate action is about turning off and stopping carbon pollution Um, as i mentioned in the beginning we also know that change will continue to come for some time and how do we proactively prepare for those future conditions and really think about you know people in communities the environment of those places but also as government we have to provide services and how do we think through all of the risks the ways that we can address stuff like heavy rainfall prolonged drought, sea level rise, increasing temperatures, increased storminess, uh, so that we can continue to have thriving, healthy, connected communities into the future as well. So we look forward, if you could help us promote that information once it's out and released, we're looking at the month of November, likely for the public review comment period. We're likely to have a series of online virtual open houses and um, some in-person open houses around the island as well.
0: This is the, is it the climate action?
1: Yeah, so this one we call updated. Climate Ready ready Oahu. Climate Ready Oahu. in sort of in that spirit of, we know that the environment and the, the climate will look different over the next 10, 20, 30, 50, 70, 80, 100 years. And what mm-hmm. are the things that we need to really level set around these kinds of evergreen principles that may not ever be done or final or accomplished because climate change will continue beyond our generation and future leaders. Uh, but we know that there's action that we can take today and action that others will need to take in the future as well.
0: Awesome. So is there any other programs that you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, Um, maybe I'll just share. So, um, you were talking about some of those measures. You know, we do produce an annual sustainability report. We were very excited this year in the fifth round. It's now a completely online interactive platform where you can actually play around and touch the data and get to know it a little bit more. Because um, this is where we are also trying to take stock on successes where we might need to double down or readvocate, or re-strategize how to meet some state or city commitment towards sustainability. Um, and another resource that we're excited on our website at resilientoahu.org slash get involved. Because um, sometimes the the government actions or the coordination of city agencies can feel like, oh, that that's great, you guys have to do that, but what about me? What, what can I do? Where can I lean in? Um, and you're acutely aware of this too, Christina, through your, your leadership with the Eco Rotary Club and your continued participation there. There's a lot of resources that we've put online just for that kind of question. Um, what are things that people can do around waste management, around water conservation, around tapping into some of these um, energy efficiency resources? So um, we're, we're always looking to build coalitions, keep the momentum going, and again, help all of us recognize that the only way through some of these sticky issues are is together and there's stuff that we can do from top to bottom and we all have to meet ourselves uh, out there in the community and and build campaigns to to really drive implementation around the commitments that we have
0: yeah um let's talk about i have these kind of topics food security i feel that <laughs> We haven't really we're doing a lot with affordable housing. I mean, at least trying to tackle this <laughs> crisis. Um, and I think infrastructure is becoming more and more apparent that like how change is inevitable and we have to work um, on things so they don't just fall apart and it costs us like five times as much to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like for food security I mean we talk about too like we're importing so much all of our oil everything that's coming in but we are also importing everything we eat so like Mm -hmm. at what point like what are we doing on Oahu side for um, for the farming industry and food security and local farmers and things like that is there anything in place or is there anything we're working towards
1: more recently, I would say the city, you know, historically, you know, we do have a state department of agriculture that generally tends to take the lead for this. There, there are multiple sort of ag um, parks around the island where the state is the land owner, but they then lease out to tenants for different size plots for different crops, et cetera. Um, but we really learned in the the onset and then. Sort of prolonged COVID economic pandemic, let alone the health crisis, how essential and ready and available our local producers are. So more often than not, of uh, you know perhaps the vast majority of the local produce was supporting restaurants or hotels or the visitor industry because um, they could also get a premium for that product, and that helps a difficult. It's tough to be a farmer. (laughs) It is really difficult to be a farmer. Um, And sometimes the business is not what the focus is. It's really about, you know, planting the things, growing the things, keeping them healthy, keeping pests away, protecting them from drought and heavy rainfall. So what we learned in the COVID pandemic was somewhat, unfortunately, because of the relief monies that we had available we were able to really ramp up and connect with local producers and make that part of our strategy to help those that were having a difficult time accessing food. So any of the relief work with the food bank or other drives that we were doing on island, the money that we were using was going to local farmers and producers. We were buying local product because that was what we had readily available to help feed community. And through that, this other notion of food hubs came to be. And there's a couple of food hubs on island and what they really are, are aggregators. So say you have a pomelo tree or a mango tree in your backyard. You can only consume so much. You can only share so much. Maybe you wanna see if you can get a little bit of extra money for that resource that you have. You can bring it to a food hub. They'll pay you a portion. They'll, they'll pay you for your, your product and then they'll go out and sell it on a on a bigger distributed network like um, farmers markets or other um, groups like Farm Link or Kahumana Farms or others that are then now doing home delivery for a lot of the goods. So, um, CSAs. In, yeah, CSAs, etc. So I think that was also an educational moment for a lot of community members about just the wealth of food that we have available to us: local, healthy, nutritious food, and even though visitor industry and hotels and restaurants have come back, those food hubs have maintained, there's more people buying local food than there was before because of these new economic models to help support getting food from farms to people that can help get it to us as consumers as well. So we were really excited to be a partner through that, both our office and a new office called the Office of Economic Revitalization, and we're we're continuing trying to find ways that the city can be a player in one of these big um, statewide issues like uh, local food production and consumption.
0: I think the number one thing will be that to really help the farmers is to be able to live on their farm. So mm-hmm. once that happens, I feel we will we will be tackling some of the hurdles and the costs and the drive and the commute. Um, which makes it really hard for farmers to. Um, yeah,
1: you're you're tucking the whole spectrum, right? Like the the business of food, the 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 labor of the food, but also it's a land use discussion. You know, how do we yeah. ma- maintain and ensure that we have these workable uh, lands? How do we ensure that people are close to where they need to be? Uh, and those are also big community discussions too.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I'm working on agrihood communities I've gone to one in that they're building out in San Diego and it's amazing what they're doing there in Encinitas and um that developer is working on um it's going to be a really cool project it's got like 250 units housing wise but it's also got like an eight acre farm all around it that's a hub for that community that's Mm -hmm. going to be like it's got you know it's going to have a brewery it's going to have event space it's going to be where everybody even not in that community but around in incinitas will come to for gatherings and different you know social events and things like that but there will also be a hub for you know the food the farmers market the coffee the you know everything and they're going to be making a lot of stuff there it's just mm. so so cool to see um, and everything is a regenerative farm and organic. And I mean, it's like everything that I feel like we need here. I would love to see if there's going to, you know, build a community or if Kamehameha Schools has this land or the state has this land to do affordable housing. Like there's ways to build these communities for affordable. There's ways to build it for Medium, you know median households um that are purchasing and for rental like to in in encapsulate like the whole thing all in one mm-hmm. where there's you know the food is right there and being grown right there for the community um and
1: there's value add opportunities and then the distribution yeah, yeah.
0: and then it brings the community together and it's not requiring requiring the community to farm to be farmers right because i think there's a lot of those kind of communities where um you're like a communal <laughs> farm or something and you're mm-hmm. all like living on the farm working the farm and that's your life but that's not reality for our island so um someone's going to have to do all that but to have it readily available will make that community more sustainable so anyhow that's that's yeah, what and I Yeah we
1: have different models and and certainly as you know we're bounded right we, our community is this island, there's different parts of the island that have different resources, there's a lot of new growth and tech development and value add production stuff and resources in Central Oahu and Um Peter Savio is doing some interesting exploration of farm lots kind of condominium style in uh, Waialua heading down into Haleiwa. I think people are exploring what are some of those barriers? Sometimes it's access to land. Sometimes it's access to financing. Sometimes it's access to water. And there's a lot of good people thinking about how to tackle those, but also we as consumers need to want it. Like we also need to purchase what they're producing. Um, And that's, that's something that I think was really exciting to see this, this awareness and this interest in the resource that is here. And I think we just weren't even that aware on how much food is available for us locally.
0: Yeah, so um, maybe we can jump into, are you, is there certain things that you guys are doing for infrastructure um, on Oahu in this sector? Because I, you know, when we talk about climate change and we're talking about sea level rise and we're talking about all these storms, is there, like I know, stormwater runoff is a huge one and Mm -hmm. um our water system is huge um and when it comes with these big rains it's like it just ends up back into the ocean and it doesn't end up in the ground because of all of our concrete everywhere and and the Mm -hmm. the canals that we've created and to direct it so it doesn't flood everywhere right but technically we want it to go back into our um our earth so we can capture this water, but it's not. So, I mean, is there is there anything that we're working on um, or we're planning for on infrastructure that you can share?
1: Yeah, that yeah, covers a of lot course. of different lot kinds of-, of infrastructure, right? From ridge to reef, whether it's some of the natural infrastructure uh, and how do we maintain mm-hmm. and improve our natural forests because they are the sponge, you know, the vast majority of this island is not inhabited. We only occupy about a quarter or less of the land area. And the rest of it is either active or fall- fallow ag land or you know, mountain peaks and high mountain forests. And that's, that's the start. That's where we need to continue. The t- we have two watershed mountain partnerships on island, the Waianae and the Kohala partnerships. Um, the Board of Water Supply is really the most active direct participant on the city side with those two organizations, primarily because of what you just said, right? Their interest is in the perpetuation of the resource itself. And that's where it comes from. It comes from rain falling on the mountain, soaking through the trees and the canopy down into the ground. And then we pull it back up, move it around the island, then we get to enjoy some of the best drinking water around the world. Um, But we also know that we've developed a lot around the community and Um, Even something like one of those high rise condos that you mentioned, they're not actually increasing the impervious surface because a lot of those areas or those parcels are basically paved over as well. But when we can put more people in a location, we're actually doing better on like a per capita basis, both in terms of of water use, energy use, use, uh, and then with respect to stormwater runoff. So I'm someone that would love to have de-paving parties and ripping up unused asphalt or unnecessary asphalt and finding ways to reintroduce more vegetation and or trees into our communities for a whole variety of reasons. One of which obviously is water quality and managing rain where it falls, like you mentioned, but also it's just a nicer community and neighborhood. Um, There's proof and evidence of, of both mentally chilling out but uh even drivers driving more respectfully and responsibly and slower through communities that have trees and vegetation um, it's also so cooler to, the trees it's literally cooler. cooler yeah
0: literally
1: so to that effect um we are actively working to elevate this awareness that trees are infrastructure themselves and we worked with congressman ed case to get an appropriation to update the city's street and park tree inventory and to build out an asset management system so that we can look at the trees in the same way they look, that we look at traffic lights or drainage canals because they are parts of our, our, our infrastructure to address climate change. And we also just last week were notified that we received another grant from the US Forest Service to continue to advance um, strategic street tree planting uh, so we we look forward to learning more about um, that once once the grant actually comes through. But those are things that I'm I'm really excited about the 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 multi benefits of something like trees and communities is is really tremendous. And you know this picture behind me is kind of an example of there's so much local leadership, but maybe people don't call it climate change adaptation. We want to also slow down, recognize, acknowledge, and elevate these community champions that are doing environmental and cultural restoration, because that actually, in our work, is climate change adaptation, even if that's not their primary motivation, because the more robust and healthy healthy systems are, and the people in the communities are, the better prepared we are, and the more climate ready we are.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's awesome. And then last on affordable housing, um, if we can, if there's anything specific that we're doing, um, I know, I know now more than ever, we've, you know, with this proclamation um, on housing that came about, um, there's been some hiccups along the way of what's been going on. And I know that statewide, but um I guess on our end for Oahu, what are some of the things we are doing to tackle affordable housing? And if you can share with us the things that you guys, your office has been kind of touching on.
1: Sure. I would recommend inviting some of my other city colleagues from the Office of Housing to really talk about the strategic efforts around production. Uh, I'm, I'm not best to talk about the ins and outs of what we're trying to do within the Department of Planning and Permitting, both on rules or the timeliness of facilitating projects to get done within what is permitted. Um, But what we from the Office of Climate Change, Sustainability and Resiliency have been really focusing on is um, the existing building stock and how do we maintain affordability by improving the efficiency of those structures, Um, because we also need to not just talk about production, but there's a need to talk about the preservation of housing and the preservation of the affordableness of that living because it's always a package deal. Once you get into it, if if you're fortunate enough to get into a rental or an ownership, you have other expenses like food. We just talked about transportation and utilities, and we can't lose sight that it's really a package of affordability that will allow someone to feel safe and secure. So we're working with our Department of Land Management. They have a portfolio of different public uh, housing projects. How do we bring more efficiency to those facilities? Um, through retrofits or be maybe even smarter on the kinds of things that we acquire to really position the residents to have stable affordable living Um, something that we tackled on the bigger scale in uh, it was ultimately adopted in 2020 there's some unfortunate history of of rules and regulations requiring certain things that perhaps we shouldn't have been requiring so we actually eliminated parking minimums within specific areas around the island or deregulated, if that's the, the way people want to talk about it, because that shouldn't be a decision that we are forcing someone to develop. We know that uh, a parking stall within a parking structure itself is about forty dollars to $60,000, and that expense gets attached to a unit. What if someone doesn't want that? What if they don't need it? We shouldn't be requiring it then that's, that's a market decision for someone that's developing a product either for rental or for sale, because that's a choice for someone, especially in the areas of the urban core, because we're also trying to promote other clean, green, other means of getting out of, out of your car and moving about community. Right. That's the whole point of things like TOD and infill development. So, um, it took a while. Uh, I'm still seeing a lot of projects building, a lot of parking. That's a that's a decision that they're making. But the evidence and data is showing that we have a lot of parking in Ala Moana area and Kakaka area that's not used. So are we still overbuilding? And are there ways that we could continue to shift and really just continue to provide housing for people, not places to store vehicles?
0: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, all of these parking stalls that are being built not necessarily it's too code anymore is because they're being sold individually and when mm-hmm. the value of a of a property when somebody's looking at a two-bedroom like to find a two-bedroom two-bath two-parking is really hard to find right so i mean but if you have it it's like golden right it's like the value of your property is worth more so i mean on the real estate side i see why developers are doing it because if they're dealing with more luxury and they're dealing with you know how they're going to sell that unit, um, they're going to expect those parking stalls because that's what those people are can afford to have and they mm-hmm. want. So, um, But when it comes to affordable housing, you're right. It's like, it's not the top priority. I mean, a lot of people now and younger generations, like they're sharing a car. Like there is a lot of people sharing a car. Um, you know, I know, I mean, just the younger demographics where it's like, even if it's a girlfriend and boyfriend, like they only have one car between them. And I'm starting to see that um, becoming more of a trend um, where it's like, oh, I don't have the car today or whatever, you know, someone saying stuff like that because they only really need need one. And when it comes to rentals, like it's really hard to find two parking for a one bedroom. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to find that? You have to do street parking. Yeah. So, so yeah.
1: And again, it's not about forcing, it's about providing different choices or sort of thresholds for informing someone's decision. And like you said, there, you know, a couple could be sharing a vehicle, but maybe, maybe they had to before and and they have an opportunity to think about potentially saving 10 to $12,000 a year because they're going to drop down to one vehicle, right? All of that becomes part of the calculus for the availability and affordability of housing.
0: Yeah. And it gives everybody the option in that sense. Um, You know, and affordable housing is such a wide spectrum of things. You know, when you say it, it's relative, right? Um, it could be as a rental or it could be as a purchase. But um, the goal is to be able to provide all of those sectors from, you know, houselessness, homelessness, all the way from transitional housing to senior housing to, you know, foster to, you know, all the way to purchasing affordable reserved housing. So um, I just, you know, I'm such a proponent for affordable housing in in all of those capacities. And I just, um, I want to see food being integrated into all of them. (laughs) That's like my thing. Once we do that, I mean, because that is the other piece that I feel is missing is like we need to find a way for local food production to be incorporated into our communities and that's like Mm -hmm. the only thing that we aren't doing with affordable housing at the moment and once we do I feel um we will fully be sustainable (laughs) because when you know we stop getting stuff shipped here we will be screwed (laughs) So we have, you know, communities being able to fend for themselves. So that's, that's my biggest thing, but I'll just add on that note,
1: maybe, maybe to wrap up. So going back to the importance and the availability and and people's interest in getting hands-on through the COVID pandemic in 2020, using some of the, at that time, it was called CARES money. We did a food scaping project where we worked with a couple of uh, senior living facilities and other um, specific demographic living facilities and built out food beds so actually those residents now continue to have this access to elevated planters on site they can get their hands in they can get access they can share resources they can commune over um, working with the food to produce a meal Um, so we were excited to pilot that we don't have more resources right now but those are i think the kinds of models or relations that you're also talking about too
0: yes for sure and um last but not least uh places where you can like like a kitchens like commercial kitchens i think that's mm-hmm. a huge one that we should probably start looking into but anyways we are coming i was telling you you're like yeah. it's really good it just I'm keeps like, going <laughs> yeah yeah um but you know To to be mindful of time, I wanted to um, end here and maybe you can share a couple of ways that they can reach out to you or the office, um, either social media wise or um, websites, volunteer.
1: All of the above. Yeah. A couple of things. Follow us at Resilient Oahu and our website is resilientoahu.org. A couple of things we'd want to promote immediately right there on the home page you'll see something called inflation reduction act we have a lot of information about what people can tap people can, into consider. immediately right now for rebates and or credits or if you're a building owner operator or a developer there's specific other resources for you um, and then also at within the action section there's a portion called get involved and that's where a lot of those other you know whether it's around transportation food waste management etc. There are things that individuals can do uh, to continue to get involved. And we look forward to sharing more with you. So please follow along with us.
0: Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. Um, Also, I think that's all I have for today. Um, To subscribe to our podcast, you can go to www.smartlivinghawaii.org. Check out the podcast there or any platform for podcasts, you'll find us. Um, Until next time, live smart. Thank you, guys.